0: Welcome to the Toby Haydock's Who's Round interview with probably the fastest turnaround of the whole lot. Two stories left to cover and after this I will only have one, so I'm going to ask my very kind victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who.
1: Well I, I, I'm, I'm Chris Bidmead, uh, Christopher H. Bidmead I think is, is the standard credit I, I used to get and I wrote uh, Legopolis and Castrovalva and Frontios. So that's the excuse for having the wonderful uh, Toby around here today.
0: Well, bless you, and as, especially as Frontios is up, nearly had Jeff Rawl, nearly had Leslie Dunlop, uh, and we, I was intending to have a much sort of longer conversation with you next year, but now we're here, so we'll start with Frontios because um, there's something. About it that you not you didn't discuss on the DVD, which I'm quite pleased about because it means that we have original material here. This this interview, we're going to try and talk about things that haven't been covered on the DVD range. So is the Christopher Hamilton Bidmead <laughs> caption uh, free zone because uh, <laughs>
1: you've, you've yeah. so
0: yes. Tell me about your link to, to Frontios beyond writing it.
1: Uh, my link to it beyond writing it. Oh, you mean well. The, f- <laughs> the you talk about the casting. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The. Um... The fact that wh- one of the one of the cast members I had actually had a run in before with uh, back in the day when I was an actor, I had been uh, at the at the Richmond Theatre um, playing Cliff in Look Back in Anger, and uh, Jimmy was um, was the chap who played the lead in Brazen in the uh, in, in the show. Uh, I, I was not responsible for the casting. Um, and, and that is the, that's the connection I think Toby's referring to here Peter,
0: Peter Gilmore,
1: yes Yes, Peter Gilmore well, I say we had a run-in with Peter Gilmore uh, it, he, he was the most extraordinary actor I think this is, this is visible on the, uh, on the DVD uh, he does appear to be acting in a completely different show from everybody else um, uh, this struck me when I saw it again recently but I, I, I didn't notice this at the time uh, probably coloured by the fact, but that I I had, as I say, worked with Peter before. Well, I I had attempted to work with Peter before, <laughs> as indeed had the rest of the cast. Uh, Peter Gilmore was one of those actors um, who, I I don't know if this was beverage related, but he his he he would turn up to rehearsals and barely, if at all, know the lines. Uh, right up until the the final day of dress rehearsal. Um, And even at the dress rehearsal, you'd get a somewhat subdued performance. And then suddenly, on the first night, the guy would light up, would take total command of the stage and the show, and leave us all in the dust as he gave the performance of his life, um, without very much regard to what the rest of the show and what... We as supporting actors were about, and I think we all found this terribly alarming, uh, and and it went on for the three weeks run of the show, so the Peter Gilmore show um, uh, with a supporting cast of very baffled actors um, trying to find out where he was on the stage and uh, and and trying to pick up cues that he was mangling. Um, uh, I, I I didn't leave this with any particular resentment towards Peter but I was just completely baffled um, and uh, it was just odd to see him re-emerging as brazen in my own show. Did Did you
0: catch up with him on, on Frontier? So you, we, you, know, when you, you mean, mean did
1: we have with... loving chats yeah. about <laughs> the past? No, um, as I recall <laughs> I did actually quite deliberately avoid him I, I, I think perhaps he didn't even know that I was the same Chris Bidmead or even if there was a Chris Bidmead involved I'm sure he didn't didn't even bother to look to see who'd written the script so I, I think he he was oblivious of the fact <laughs> that that he and I had this past history.
0: Um, well it's it's because you, you mentioned that you know you'd, you'd been an actor and um, you'd trained at RADA so you must have been uh, so, interesting for somebody that we see as a writer, and a writer particularly with a scientific bent. we know about your, your interest in technology and all of those sorts of things, that is an odd bedfellow to me with somebody who's an actor, and clearly not a bad one if you trained at RADA.
1: Oh, I think the fact that I trained at RADA doesn't, doesn't in any way certify me as a good actor. But, um, I yes, I'd, I'd, I'd gone through school um, very, very interested in science. I mean, science was the main thing for me. Um, but for some reason I recall I, I was also quite good at art at school and I wanted to go to the Slade and my art master wanted me to go to the Slade. Um, but th- that never happened. And I got a job in... <laughs> I got a job with Grundig, the tape recorder people, because I absolutely love tape recorders. And my bus every morning took me down Gower Street... And uh, from the top of the bus, I saw that there was this building into which these bevies of really beautiful women were disappearing every morning. Uh, and I, I, I remember thinking, I don't know what the hell that building is, but whatever it is, that's where I ought to be, not, not really a, gun- a <laughs> in in New Oxford Street. And uh, <clears throat> when I discovered it was RADA, I suddenly decided that my career... <laughs> my future career was obviously going to be as an actor so i i applied i applied to rada i had no money at all i had no backing from anybody i applied for a scholarship to rada and blow me uh, i did an audition i I completely screwed up the audition um forgot my lines and so forth but i I don't think it was about that i think it was the it was the way i behaved when i forgot my lines i said I said, I'm terribly sorry, I've, I've, I've completely dried. I, I really don't know um, what I'm doing. And I think there was something about that part of the performance that really convinced them. So anyway, they, yeah, they gave me a scholarship of I, uh, so free admission to RADA and, and £2 a week subsidence money, which was absolutely wonderful. And I, I, I lived on that for two years at RADA. And then when I left RADA, of course, I talked to myself, well, this is this is it. This is what I've got to go and do, and um, and I did when I became an actor.
0: And did any of your writer contemporaries stick it out?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Martin Jarvis comes to mind. He's uh, done okay. Uh, yeah, there was yeah, a bunch of us. Um, um, Gosh. yes, Martin Jarvis comes to mind, but uh, Linda, um, Linda, who became uh, Linda Laplante.
0: Oh, Linda Marshall. Yes, Mar- that's
1: right. We were rather together. She was a, she was a rather shy little thing. Um, yeah, she she did well. Um, uh, Susan, God, an American actress called Susan, whose name escapes me at the moment, became a a, a major um, actress against. Uh, uh, played played uh, against people like Steve McQueen and so forth. In, in God, what was what was her name? I remember as soon as this interview is over, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, a lot of us. Um, Philip Martin was there with oh, me. Oh,
0: I've done a Who's Round with Philip Martin. Oh, He's have you done this? Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Um, I've, yeah Philip did good stuff later after that. Um, yeah, so I left. I left. I was lucky enough to get an absolutely top class uh, agent. Um, and uh, he said to me, "What do you want to do next?" And I said, "Well, I'd rather fancy going to Birmingham Rep." So he fixed that up for me, and I went to Birmingham Rep, and yeah, did did acting for well until until the seventies, I think.
0: And when you stopped doing it, did you? I mean, did you miss it, or you, did well, you? Well, no, sense? I didn't. I, I yeah. I,
1: I, no not what happened is i went to the bbc drama repertory company uh, which was a very nice kind of acting to do you 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 rolled in at 10 o'clock in the morning and you uh, you had your own canteen there and you did three plays a week um and you had you, you had about three days to work on a play which was very nice um and during the course of this, uh, as a young actor, I got very—I was well—I said got, but I was very arrogant, young actor. And a, a number of the scripts we did, at the rate we were doing them, were not actually all that good. And I tended to be very vocal about this and say to the cast, "Oh God, this is more more rubbish we've got to do." And they said to me, "Well, if you think you can do better, why don't you? Why don't you start writing stuff?" And uh, one was accumulating all this paper because you, you you took your scripts home after they were done and, and, and they were blank on the back. So I started sticking them into my typewriter and writing my own stuff. And I, I, I started writing radio plays and bless its heart, the BBC started doing them. And I, I wrote a six-part series called The Joke About Hilary Spite. And that was all... Uh, uh, a lot of... F- Fun to do and and quite lucrative. It turned out, it went went out round the world and and Canada wanted me to do a special Canadian version of it as well, so they paid me extra for that. Um, no, that was uh, so. I, I actually, luckily enough, a, a, a really good writing career came came out of the BBC, all on the back of these uh, these uh, <laughs> BBC radio scripts, which were which were. Uh, Gestettnered onto, onto very specially soft paper. I don't know if you ever worked in... in, in I don't know they really still do this in the radio. But when you get a bunch of pages clipped together in the BBC studio and you're, you're working near a mic, um, you have to be very careful when you turn a page not, to, not that it doesn't, doesn't sound on the mic. So we had this specially soft paper, almost like soft loo paper, and this was the stuff I took home and, and, and wrote my stuff on the back of.
0: Well, and as we, we leapt off with Frantius, of an interesting thing about all of your Doctor Who stories is that um, they're all named after the planet. It's a good job that didn't happen in the John Pope, year. they'd all be called Earth. <laughs> you have a logopoly. And, and I remember as a kid being. Oh, it's just I, I wanted them to be called... The Goppler should be called The Maths of Death or something. Oh, right. Or, yes, and yes. and, and Francios was going to be called The Hungry Earth, which I don't know if you know this, and a new series Doctor Who episode
1: has since been called. The Hungry Earth, The Hungry Earth, yeah. Yes, I thought Doctor Who titles were very jokey. And um, one of the things that I had done when I was a uh, script editor was I had one of these new calculators that does uh alphanumerics and uh it was a printing calculator i still got it somewhere um a hewlett packard it was very very costly at the time it was pretty well a computer and you could program it and i had programmed this thing to churn out doctor who titles <laughs> uh it was churning out uh all, the, all these you know uh, uh, doctor who and the uh, uh and the death of photon and uh uh, Doctor Who, the the terror of the Autons, and all this stuff. It was just just kind of making up titles and churning them out on my desk, and and uh, uh, th- this was this was because I I actually somewhat despised those sort of titles. Mm-hmm. I I wanted a nice, nice straightforward, and I liked a single word title. So yeah, I hadn't realized. Of course, they are all named after planets. My three. Um, there were two others that I tried to do, which were subsequently not done. But they they didn't have single palette, uh single planet titles.
0: Well, do you, I mean, do you think? That, uh, because we talked when we had coffee before we started. You were saying that. Um, uh, do do you? Do, does you're not writing for television, particularly after Doctor? Is that because of Doctor Who, or because just because life took you elsewhere?
1: Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. No, I mean it's because I was. Because I was stupid. I mean, I think I was quite a good TV writer within the limited genre of Doctor Who. Uh, I think if I'd known more about office politics uh, and, and been a bit, bit smarter about that, I could, could have had a career in television, um, maybe actually working inside the BBC or, or, or at least working as a regular working writer for, for television in general. But no, I got I got carried away. What happened was I bought myself a microcomputer back in nineteen eighty one when I took the job, and I just found this so completely fascinating that I started writing about microcomputers for the for the magazines, and and that uh, uh, that and Doctor Who royalties sort of carried me quite nicely financially uh, and and interest wise. Um, right up to the present day, so, um, writing, I I mean, writing for television was, was at a turning point. My, my writing was based uh, on a book by Malcolm Hulk, Mm. which was rather, rather tellingly called Writing for Television in the 70s. Yeah, I
0: know, well.
1: And television was changing so fast, um, it, 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 I think I think whatever it was that I learnt about writing for television in 1980 would simply no longer apply. It just it, it it it's such a different medium now. But the other thing about television back in 1980 is it was an important piece of furniture in the corner of the living room, and people paid attention to it. I think now our eyeballs are all over the place, and television is just a secondary or even tertiary thing. And I think this is reflected in, in in the writing. I think we we wrote to a four-part structure where you could have... I don't know if this is answering any question you've asked, but right. <laughs> we wrote to a four-part structure that relied on, I, I would insist on, on cliffhangers, but really good, strong cliffhangers, not cliffhangers that, you know, with one bound he's free in the next episode, that the idea of a cliffhanger was that it should it should reverse the story in some way. It should change the direction of the story if you had a really good cliffhanger. So you had a good solid structure, and this is based on the fact that you could pretty well guarantee that the people who were watching episode one would be back next week to watch episode two, and so on right the way through to episode four. And you no longer could write like that. I think that part of what I don't like about modern TV writing, perhaps in general, but certainly as it applies to Doctor Who is this sense that you've got to grab the eyeballs every second. You've got to have something interesting and quirky happening all the time. Otherwise, you can't guarantee the audience are going to pay attention. They may be looking down at their phones or twiddling with their tablets or just wandering off into another room or something. Uh, and and you can't guarantee to get them back for the next episode, so you have to cram everything into the first episode. And there it is, maybe two episodes you can get away with, but certainly certainly not four anymore. Is that a, is that a fair?
0: Yes. So- Although interesting because I, I, I was talking to June Hudson about The Leisure Hive yesterday and we had it on in the background and, it, and it, I, it cast my mind back to The Leisure Hive DVD commentary where you are quite mean to Paul Lovett Bickford because of his way that he tells the story and I think yes that opening pan of the of the uh, uh, Brighton <laughs> Beach is an extraordinary work of grand folly but then there's, there's a moment where the, there's a shot of the sun rising over the thing uh, over Argolis, and, and, uh, and what's what's this, Lovett? What are you doing here? Got, <laughs> he's telling the story visually. It's television. He's allowed, isn't he? He's saying it's the dawn of Argolis. The sun's coming up. And that
1: did work for you. Uh, didn't it did work yes. for me. I,
0: I do I do like what he does with the leisure hive, with certain caveats. But you seem to give him quite a hard time on that on that commentary track.
1: Oh, well, I think it was based not just on not just on what we were seeing when we when we see the the show unfolding, but also the, the knowledge of how, how Lovett worked. Uh, I mean, there are two names that stick in my mind. One is Paul Joyce and one is, one is Lovett Bickford. Um, uh, Lovett Bickford's such a wonderful name, apart from anything else, um, where one is tempted to use the word pretentious about both of them. But, uh, my God, yes, they certainly brought something to the show that it badly needed. I mean, there was this, this extraordinary uh, polarity there there were people who worked who regularly worked inside Doctor Who, for whom it was just Doctor Who, oh God, another Doctor Who, you know, oh God, we, we'll, we'll get through it, you know, we'll get it done. There are certain minimum standards, and we're already working to them, so let's get this thing on, yeah, yeah, that was the prevailing atmosphere about Doctor Who, and then there were these guys who floated in, there were the, your love at Bigfords and your poor Joices who were going to make great works of art out of this thing and uh, bless their hearts I mean it was, it was kind of wonderful to have them there but even as they were there you, you, you realise that they were they were into the wind because this is not this is not how Doctor Who works
0: um, Well both those names you mentioned didn't work on the show again and in fact in Paul yeah. Joyce's case I don't think worked in television drama ever again
1: no but but what an honour to have to have worked with both of those guys uh, and and yeah so was I was I really mean to, to love it on the uh, but
0: I just remember uh. because <laughs> I think that if you compare The Leisure Hive to the previous story The Horns of Nymon, it's like a different show I mean part of that is John Nathan turning up the theme tune and the, and the opening titles but the Horns of Nymon is very obviously studio band videotape drama with you know three cameras parked in front of yes, some yes. Not very good sets and some actors being allowed to do what the hell they want. Whereas Love It But You, know, lofty ambition is always good. <laughs> uh, love It But is trying to make it like a like a movie. Yes, and it looks yes. great and it looks yes. unlike any other Doctor Who story. Um, and I I'd rather like it for that. I'm, I'm a lot of people disagree with me, but personally I th- I think it's. It's such an extraordinary looking thing, which for the tele- television medium, I, I I rather like. I like Warriors uh, Gate as well. Um, I think he does a nice job of that. But it's interesting on the DVD of that that Paul Joyce is about the only person in Doctor Who history that has a bad word to say about Barry Letts. Oh sort of yes, A saintly yes. figure, Doctor, and Paul Joyce. They go, no, he was old fashioned. He was the past. I was the future.
1: He As was... I remember, Paul is wearing shades. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yellow yeah. specs, yes. I think. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's being he's being the the French. Yes, Yes, Oh, oh boy. Uh, no, it, uh, just uh, I mean, you know, I worked extensively with Paul on on the script. Yeah. Taking poor old Gallagher's script to, totally to pieces and putting it back together again, and it, Paul would come round to my house every night for a week, and we, we, we crack away at this thing because what what Stephen had written was, was magical and wonderful, but it was much more a novel than a, than a, um, uh, than a, it was undoable as a TV drama, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, we really had to take it to pieces and, and make dramatic scenes out of it. And
0: well, it's interesting, because when you are talked of in Doctor Who terms, it's always, everyone always talks about the fact that you have a scientific background and you want to introduce scientific rigor to Doctor Who, and that's been talked of a, a lot. But For example, Warrior's Gate, everyone talks about you know the way that it looks and the cocktail-inspired visuals and all that sort of thing, and nobody ever talks about The bit I love about it is the fact that you've got all these highfalutin uh, science-fiction ideas and this gateway that's the... Different between the and the crew of the privateer are the most prosaic bunch of lazy good, and I just love that aspect of it that you've got amidst all of these yes things, you've got these guys who stop for <laughs> stop for lunch and have their sandwiches. Things yeah, like but that. I,
1: I you no, I can't I can't take credit for any of that. I mean, that was in uh, as I remember was definitely in Gallagher's original idea that uh, uh, I mean, we we get a you get a similar thing, of course, in Aliens, don't you? Yes. In, yeah, yeah. This, the, the mundane nature of life within this strange science fiction world. Um, but uh, what, what Steve Gallagher did, and maybe I didn't fully appreciate this at the time, was present us with an absolutely wonderful world of characters and, and surroundings uh, which just needed to be banged into some sort of dramatic shape. Ironically, you know, Steve became um, a, a big shot in, in television in, sure. in the States. Um, and he's now a, a cracking... I'm reading one of his books at the moment, The Boathouse. Um, he's he, a cracking good novelist, too.
0: But it's... Because I know you rewrote a lot of uh, um, the scripts that you've <laughs> script edited, you scripted. but could say that. I, I, but I remember reading an interview with Eric Sayward when it, he talked about the development of Frontios and saying he couldn't believe it, that you'd been script editor of Doctor Who and so you knew what could be done and you'd written this story that was not doable within the confines of what Doctor... because you had this vast colony spaceship and, and he was going, hang on, you you were my predecessor, you know what we can get away with and what we can't, why, why have you given me this? Is that fair of him?
1: Yes. Oh, no, it's 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 absolutely fair, but he, he's he's letting himself off the hook, as I think he, <laughs> he so often does. Um... I, it, it's the job of the writer to, to press the boundaries, I think, and it's the job of the script editor to, to, to reel them in. And uh, Sayward was the script editor. He is the person, I think, who should have said, yeah, lovely idea, these Tractators, but they're going to be a real mess when we try and do them in the studio. So can you, can you rethink that? And we never had that conversation. And I went into the studio with this clear idea that the Tractators were going to be these wonderful things that could roll themselves into balls. And, of course, that never happened. But I lay that at at Saywood's store. I mean, uh, when I worked as a script editor, I I, I didn't want to trammel my writers with, with the very distinct limitations of the show. I thought that's something that we can do in the second draft, you know, but let them go and let their imaginations run free, and then we'll pull it all together in the second draft. Um, and as I say, Sabred and I never had that conversation, so, so I blame him.
0: It's a shame because they had gone to the extent they don't, I mean I think the director even thought it was going to happen because he'd hired dancers, all the actors. I know,
1: that's so sad, that's so sad for the cast, I know. Um, could we have done it differently? Well, we certainly did it differently today. God, I envy them. <laughs> I envy the, the, the budget and the capabilities they have today, which we, we never have.
0: My thanks to Chris and for entering into the spirit of it with such gusto and with such short notice. Uh, we have an interesting conversation about charities in the next edition. He's such an interesting fellow, indeed he justifies uh, two editions. Um, so for now I'm going to ask you to donate to my charity for this edition, which is the Psoriasis Association. You could do it directly but um, it might stoke my ego if you sponsor me um, at uh, uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash Toby I have a Virgin Money Giving page uh, Uh, under my name, Toby Hadoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E, capital T, capital H, because that's the way I roll in grammatical circles. Um, Because rather than just ask you to give, give money to my charity, I've entered the Manchester 10K run next year. Now, for some of you fighting fit folk out there, running 10K may seem like a stroll in the park, albeit one that's 10K long. Anyway, uh, but my idea of exercise over the past 15 years has probably been to run around the internet looking to see if I can find out if the actor who played Monoid 1 is still alive. So 10k (laughs) might well kill me, in which case I'm sure it's worth one or two pounds on your behalf uh, uh, to uh, celebrate my (laughs) self-constructed demise for a good cause. So in May I'll be running uh, the 10k run uh, for the Psoriasis Association so if you could sponsor me a bit that would be very nice. More from Chris next time in what will be the last uh, recorded Who's Round of 2013. I did one just after that which was the Stephen Moffat one that in true timey-wimey fashion has already been released. It was released at Christmas last year so um, so as for the whole Who's Round Odyssey um, uh, it's uh, well appropriately considering that it's script editor Christopher H. Bidmead it's the end and the moment has been well and truly prepared for for blooming ages so, uh, so tune into that one next time in the meantime thanks very much for listening
1: Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Unit Extinction.
0: Sam, have you heard of the Nestines?
1: Who in unit hasn't? So that's what we're up against.
0: There's an invasion on the way. One of their energy units has come down in the Gobi. It's imperative that you recover it and return it to London. If this is what we think it is a swarm leader, it could hold valuable information on the Nestines' plans. How long have we got? The main body of Nestine spheres could reach the Earth within the next 24 hours. Bear in mind, you may not be alone. Because it went so far off course, it's unlikely the Nestines had anyone nearby, but they're bound to be looking for it.
1: Big finish. We love stories.